Thanks for choosing a 3CR podcast. Throughout June 2021, we're running our annual Radiothon when we ask you, the listener, to make a donation so that we can continue to make great radio. Your donation will help keep us community-owned and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And with that done, please enjoy your podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the DOGS program, the Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools. And we're here to promote and to defend public education. And doesn't it need defending? Particularly at this point in time in Australia, because what we're going to tell, tell you today in our press release is really quite astonishing. Uh, we're going to be talking not just about recurrent funding, which is up to anything like $19 billion a year for private schools, we're going to also talk about a thing called capital funding. Capital funding is actually money for buildings and land and maintenance and renovations of schools. And we're talking about billions of dollars going to private schools. This means that we, the taxpayers, are paying for private schools, the actual schools themselves. Back in the day, they said that we had to pay for recurrent funding and they would do all the work putting up the schools themselves, but not anymore. They want new schools to be paid for by us. But the story gets worse. They are getting considerably more money for capital expenditure than public schools are, which means, well, what does it mean? It means that when people want the choice of a public school for their children in the outlying areas, uh, with all of these new housing developments, they'll have to either wait or not have the choice at all. So, uh, we'll be talking about the capital investment per private students, which is two to three times more than that for public students. And this is a national shame. Then, because we're really talking about the entanglement here of church and state with these religious schools being given our money for both recurrent and capital grants, I'm going to ask Dale to tell us about what Rudd, an ex-Prime Minister, has to say about the separation of church and state, particularly in the last couple of weeks when we have been exposed to Mr Morrison and his Pentecostalist and QAnon friends. Um, the ABC has been uh, criticised for even talking about such things. But should we be talking about such things? Well, the dogs uh, don't care what people believe. We believe in freedom of conscience. That's why we believe in separation of um, the church and the state, religion from the state. But there is a whole question when you have the Liberal Party uh, over in South Australia being um, almost taken over by a certain brand of religion and you have um, what the Four Corners have been talking about. Where should we draw the line? Well, the dogs are quite clear we shouldn't give them a penny. Uh, then we're going to talk about where the power brokers went to school in Sydney. And, of course, we have a great state school. So I'll pass you over now to Dale, who's going to uh, read for us the first part of our press release, 894 which will go up onto our website at www.adogs.info. 
capital investment per private student is two to three times more than that for public students, a national shame. Over to you, Dale. Thank you, Jean. Um, Adam Roris, an education economist and policy analyst working extensively in Australia and overseas, has written a report entitled Investing in Schools, Funding the Future. His findings have been reported in The Age by Adam Carey under the title The $30 billion Gap, Private Schools Dominate Renovation Spending, and by the Australian Education Union under the title Investment in Modern Classrooms Would Lift Student Performance, New Report Shows. In a nutshell, the report shows, to quote Corinna Haythorpe from the AEU, when children are learning in modern classrooms that are well-maintained and equipped for the future, they can thrive and reach their full potential. The report shows a capital investment gap of over $8,000 between 2009 and 2018 per public school student compared to their private school peers, and that private schools have received two to four times the level of investment of public schools per student every year since 2013, a funding gap which Roris describes as a ratio of shame and inequity. Dale, does that mean, Dale, does that mean, uh, as, I, as I understand it, that means that a private school student uh, in capital grants gets $8,000 more than a public school student in Australia in the last 10 years. That's exactly right. That's, that's, that's the average that he's averaged out. Yes. Extraordinary. This is now in capital funding. It's mind-boggling. Just think about it, yes. Um, this, this is um, for, for two-thirds of Australia's children, they are being discriminated against uh, two to three times uh, more than the uh, private school students. They're getting less, two to three times less in capital grants. That's buildings to put them in. And Adam Roris told The Age, the data showed investment in Australian schools has favoured private students to an astonishing degree. He argued government funds for capital works would be better directed at under-resourced schools. Research suggests you're going to get more, most benefit from investing in facilities and buildings where there is a shortage and inadequacy of those facilities and buildings, he said. You're not going to get a great deal of bang for your buck in terms of learning, in terms of kids staying at school, if you invest in a school that already has all of that and you're just giving them something even better. The only years for many decades in which capital expenditure on public students approached anything like that for private school students were the years 2011 and 2012, during Kevin Rudd's and Julia Gillard's Building Education Revolution after the GFC and the Gonski Report, referred to in the Roris Report as the BER years. Dogs look at these figures and note that in terms of choice of a public education for Australian children, Australia is at the crossroads. Lack of funding for basic infrastructure and maintenance of public schools means that in the near future, Australian parents and children will be confronted with taxpayer money funding private but not public schools in their areas. For example, already in the inner city, which is crying out for a new secondary school, public money is being poured into the Catholic sector to expand their schools. And in the developing suburbs, new public schools are years away, while Catholic and other schools are already being built. Meanwhile, older public schools are bereft of suitable maintenance. There's something else that can be said here too, Dale. What no one is saying, but the dogs are prepared to say it, is that every year billions of taxpayer dollars in both recurrent and capital grants are being channeled into these private religious enterprises, because that's what they are. And these enterprises use this money to buy land, to build lavish infrastructure, 
you, you have schools that are used as lavish churches and demand more of the same from the public purse. In other words, huge sums of public money are being used every year to enrich private religious enterprises for the private and not for the public good. Yes. Meanwhile, older public schools are bereft of suitable maintenance. Public school enrolments have grown by 300,000 over the last decade, and there will be an additional 200,000 students entering public schools in the next 10 years. But we don't have the classrooms needed to cater for this growth. Irresponsible government, economic and social madness. The Roris report itself rewards careful reading. Roris draws, draws on a decade of local and international evidence that shows modern facilities with good lighting, temperature and acoustic controls and appropriate furniture affect learning opportunities and student outcomes. But it is the findings dealing with the extraordinary disparities between capital funding for private schools as opposed to that for public schools which are the most damning. They prove that the that policies of both state and federal governments mean that private students are worth a lot more of taxpayer money than public students. The next decade promises more of the same, with Australia falling further and further behind in the international states. It is more than time that Australian taxpayers take over the schools that they are already paying for, already paying through the net. Yes, that's quite right. Yes. Ah, uh, when's the next election? Let's see what what the Greens and the um and the uh, Labor Party have to say for this. We don't have too much faith in the Labor Party, but um, no. it's wonderful that these figures are actually coming out. Uh, we really do have to thank the Australian Education Union and um, Mr. Rollis and also um the uh, Save Our Schools people for getting respectful figures for us. Uh, these figures have been discussed at length in some of the AU web seminars that are available on YouTube. So any of you, anyone can go and check out Adam Roris, the political economist, actually explaining in great detail just what is going on, just what's happening with your money. We might be able to get uh, reproduce some of that on this program in the future. But um, uh, these are very important findings. But we'll have a bit of a break now and um, Maddie and Sorrel can give us lots of facts and figures, the findings of Mr Rorris, so that parents and teachers and public school children themselves can be well informed. This is not recurrent funding, this is capital funding for actual schools, while our public school parents are screaming out for proper maintenance. And we'll be back. You can see that this country is covered in the blood of Aboriginal people, and the length and breadth of it. Australia is a part of an undeclared war and a secret invasion. And it began 250 years ago this year. Now, we have a country that's built on lies, deceit, fraud, propaganda and race hatred indoctrination. Now it's been 250 years of us being oppressed in our own land, brutally. We might be oppressed but we understand what freedom is and we fight for it every day and we've resisted this occupation since day one. And I predict colonialism, capitalism, imperialism is going to get knocked out cold by about mid this year. Tricia, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. You're listening to the Dogs Program on 3CR, 855 on the AM dial. And before the break, we were talking about capital expenditure on public and private schools and how in the last 10 years, according to a very well-renowned economist and analyst, economic analyst, um, the figures are very startling. A private school student in Australia is worth $8,000 more than a public school student. 
But let's have a look at the uh, overall figures and the uh, figures that are put forward by Adam Morris in his findings. Uh, these findings can be found in the report. It's a, a report with 81 pages and a tremendous amount of information about every state and every um, amount of, uh, of capital grants throughout Australia, state and federal. But um, I'm going to ask uh, Maddie and Sol if they will read some of these findings for us. Over to you, Maddie. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Jean. We are very keen to read you some of Adam Rice's findings and you can find them on our press release on the DOGS website. Um, we're going to start from key finding seven, which states that annual capital investment in Australian schools over the 10-year period of 2009-2018 has varied from around $4.1 billion to $11.85 billion obviously. Two features dominate the pattern of capital investment in Australian schooling, which are private schools have greater total capital investment seven years out of 10, even though they have approximately half the enrolments. And then the three years where public schools had more funds invested in capital than private schools was during the building education revolution, which is the BER period, when the Commonwealth Government invested in schools as part of its fiscal stimulus program to deal with the global financial crisis. Well, I remember this. Um, mm -hmm. For once, for once, we actually had money coming into public education for our buildings. It was wonderful. Yep. Yes. Um, and it was a part of the stimulus package that the Rudd and, above all, um, Gillard, who had been the Minister for Education, brought forward. And the, co the coalition opposition just went absolutely crazy claiming that there was so much wrong with it because it was done fairly quickly. But um, it was absolutely wonderful because we got some money in uh, into the public system and its buildings, but it only lasted for a couple of years. Uh, that is actually what Morris mm. is saying. But uh, please continue. Yeah. I will, and um, I just thought I would let everyone know I'm a redhead and I'm a big fan of redheads. Julia Gillard was a fantastic Prime Minister. <laughs> she was a woman who had such power and such conviction, and um, I really miss it, don't you? Well, she was like prepared to take, on the public, uh, to take on the private schools, I know that. To an extent. Unfortunately, she, she did make the promise that no school would lose a dollar, which in essence was a promise that, that no private school was going to lose any funding, which was, you know, it was obviously appealing to a voting base, mm -hmm. but um, yep. it, it did sell out public schools. I'm sorry, well, it's got to be said. She was still Labor Party. Exactly. And, um, yeah, of course, um, yeah. uh, uh, people, people are still uh, horrified at the way Abbott behaved, but um, I'm not sure yeah. things are much better. Anyway, keep going, please. I will. Okay, so in Key Finding 8, the pre-BER, as in the Building Education Revolution of Julia Gillard period, is the year 2009. Pre-BER, private schools were investing in aggregate 10% more than public schools in capital, which is $3.2 billion versus $2.9 billion. In Key Finding 9, the BER period is unique because it provides public schools with greater capital investment than private schools. During the BER period, which is um, 2010 to 2012, public schools outstripped private schools in total capital investment, which is $15.1 billion versus $10.8 billion. Um, in Key Fund 10, we see the post-BER period from 2013 to 2018 sees a return to the old ways, leaving public schools far poorer in investment, which is $11.4 billion, compared to private schools, which is $17.4 billion, which is national per-student figures reveal the true gap between sectors. Key finding 11 states that on a per-student basis, private schools enjoy greater investment every single year over the 10 years examined by this study. 
In key finding 12, we see that the difference in capital funding varies from approximately $1,700 per student in 2017 to $394 in 2011. In key finding 13, the smallest gap in per student funding between private and public schools is found during the BER period when it was less than $500 per student in 2011 and 2012. Key finding 14 states, from the end of BER funding, the gap in capital funding per student has increased beyond $1,000 for every year. The ratio of inequity, ROI, uh, presents private school capital investment per student as a multiple of public school capital investment per student. It gauges the extent of the imbalance in capital investment between school sectors. For example, a value of two means that private schools have invested double the amount per student of public schools. In key finding for 15, it states nationally the ROI has been above two for every That's year. ratio that, of inequality, isn't it? The ratio yeah. of inequality. Yeah. Yes. It's been it's above two. ratio of inequality, yeah. In inequity, the ratio of inequity. Mm. Um, it's been above two for every year except for the three BER years of investment in public schools. All years before and after the BER program have shown a ratio of inequity stretching from a best-case scenario of 2.1 to as high as 3.7. Every year studied, per-student capital investment in private schools is at least double that in public schools and even up to four times greater. The ROI, again, that is the ratio of inequity, of capital investment between private and public schools is so extreme it is more a ratio of shame than inequity. It frames the signal failure of public policy to provide any semblance of balance in the provision of faculties across, sorry, facilities across school sectors. And it indicates that they want the private schools to increase in size and uh, the public schools to uh, wither on STEM. That's the real, that's the real worry. Yes. They want public education to wither away. Yeah, they do. Because they're not prepared to put the money into the actual schools for the children to be educated in. Shocking. Yeah, yeah it is. It's disgusting. Mm -hmm. In key finding 16, the significance of the capital imbalance captured by the ROI is heightened because, one, a majority of all students are in public schools and, two, students from poorer backgrounds are far more likely to be found in public schools. These students have less chance for resource deficiencies at the school level to be offset by household access to resources and support. Um, so would you like to continue telling us about these key findings? I would love Rory. to. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Madeline. All right, so key finding 17 finds the average annual capital investment gap per student has remained fairly consistent between the pre-BER period, where it was 1,409, and the post-BER period, where it was 1,466. The BER period improved the situation, but even during this period, public schools were underinvested by more than $750 a student every year. <clears throat> Key finding 18, the per-student cumulative impact of the capital gap across years is substantial. Over 10 years, the capital gap in funding between private schools and public schools is more than $12,450 per student. In the post-BER period, 2013 to 2018, public schools received in total nearly $8,800 less per student for capital investment than private schools. So that's the uh, period. Uh, in which there was money put into public schools has actually masked the fact that for the majority of the period, uh, it was even much, much greater than a difference of 8,800 per pupil uh, in, in capital funding. Not recurrent funding, just capital funding. Extraordinary. Very large difference. 
Uh, Key Finding 19 has told us that the average annual capital investment gap has been the greatest in the post-BER years, where it was $3.8 billion. This exceeds the $3.1 billion pre-BER 2009 and more than double the CIG during BER period, where there was a gap of $1.7 billion. So you're really looking at very, very big figures. We're looking at billions of dollars here, which are being channeled into the religious sector um, to build uh, actual uh, buildings which we don't own anymore. And it's taxpayer money. Yeah, it's huge. Uh, well, yeah, it's called corruption, actually. Definitely. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, keep going. Oh, no, that was great. Uh, key finding 20, during the 10-year period from 2009 to 2018, the cumulative capital investment gap between private and public sectors was $29.6 billion. This is the value of investment that was deprived from public schools. If they had received the equivalent per student investment in their schools as for the private schools. The so community- he's, saying, he's saying that in this 10-year period, the public schools, just to be equal with the private schools, should have got an extra $229.6 billion. Yeah. That's a very big difference, isn't it? Yeah. Very. It's a massive difference. Yeah, yeah. The cumulative capital investment gap public schools was deprived of $21.5 billion in the capital works in the first six years the coalition was in power. This is the additional investment they would have received for school facilities, equipment and in buildings if funded at the same rate as private schools. Key findings 21 found during the post-BER period 2013 to 2018, the cumulative capital investment gap between private and public sectors was $21.5 billion. This is the value of investment that was deprived from public schools if they have received the equivalent per student investment in their schools as for private schools. Key finding 22 tells us that during the BER period from 2010-2012, public schools fare better. However, the cumulative capital investment gap between private and public sectors still exceeded $5 billion. This is the value of investment that was deprived from public schools if they had received the equivalent per student investment in their schools as for private schools. Key finding 23 has told us that capital investment per student over 10 years across public systems varies from an annual average of just over $1,000 in Tasmania to as high as $2,141 in the ACT. The average annual expenditure in the post-BER period from 2013 to 2018 collapses across all jurisdictions, with Tasmania, South Australia and New South Wales having the lowest levels, respectively at $500, $572, and $610. Key finding 24 shows us that public schools in all states and territories have underinvestment compared to their private school counterparts. New South Wales, Victoria and Queensland have the largest share of the capital investment gap over all 10 years and for the post-BER period, approximately 80% for both of those periods. Key finding 25 tells us that the cumulative capital investment gap over the 10-year period from 2009 to 2018 exceeds $8,000 per student for all jurisdictions except for the ACT. Key finding 26 shows us that the imbalance in capital investment between private and public sectors is at critical levels across most years for all jurisdictions except in the ACT and Western Australia. The majority of years where the ratio of inequality was at less than critical levels was during the BER period from 2010 to 2012. Very interesting finding. Well, these are very, very insightful and interesting findings. Um, It indicates just how this current Liberal government in Canberra, but the state governments are a little better, you know, uh, are just favouring private schools and expecting them to uh, 
really uh, educate Australian children. And they can't because they won't. They're only interested in the elites and those that they want to teach. They are not interested in all of Australian children. And large numbers of Australian parents, and particularly the new generation that are being kept out of the housing market, or if they are in the housing market with their children, will have mortgages which are enormous, they cannot afford uh, to uh, be sending their children to private schools. And they're indicating this by voting with their feet into public schools. So um, I am saying again, when's the next election? <laughs> because people should be uh, listening to this, uh, th these kind of figures uh, to indicate, which indicates just where Mr Morrison and company uh, think uh, the future is going to be for their children. And if you'd like to uh, go over anything that we've spoken about in the press release, you can find the entire press release at our website at www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. And it will have all of the pertinent figures and facts we've discussed heretofore. But now we shall have a little bit of a break. And then we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit more about so-called separation of church and state in Australia. Isn't that right, Jean? Well, as far as the finances are concerned, I'm afraid the, uh, the religious people are well and truly into the public treasury. They're like Mr Scrooge, <laughs> uh, having a lovely time, aren't they? Yes. We'll be back after these messages. pay your donation to the 3CR Radiothon? Well, you can do so online at www.3cr.org.au or call us with your credit card details on 03-9419-8377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to P.O. Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. Indigenous people know have censored our right of telling the truth and the truth is what this country is most fearful of in particular indigenous truths. Until history is told by the vanquished lens which is our people telling our story our way and have the right to be able to incorporate that into a system of learning well people are always going to be denied that truth by deceit and lies. When you look at the type of psychological warfare and spiritual warfare that Aboriginal people are caught in. It's not just in the sense of military when they talk about weapons of mass destruction, but you're right, it's in terms of the media and the industry of media is a warfare against our people and so is religion, I believe, in the Western sense. They're, they're all weapons of mass destruction against our, our people. We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. You're listening to The Dogs Programme. And we've been talking about the extraordinary amounts of billions that are going into the coffers of the uh, religious people throughout Australia to build schools where our public schools are just not getting that kind of money at all. And um, this uh, brings up issues of church and state. Now, as well as that, you might have noticed that in the last few weeks there's been a lot of talk about Pentecostalism and um, members of the Liberal Party and other people in Australia in the influence of religion on the state uh, in Australia. Now, Kevin Rudd, who himself is a Christian, um, he, he wrote uh, an article answering Jared Henderson in The Australian, who he was sticking up for Mr Morrison, and they wouldn't print it. 
Surprise, surprise, the Murdoch Press wouldn't print Mr Kevin Rupp. So he went to the Guardian and the Guardian did print him. And this is what he wrote. Dale is going to read what the Guardian were prepared to print. Over to you, Dale. Thank you, Jean. Yes, this is the response that Murdoch's Australian refused to publish. It's Kevin Rudd's answer to Jared Henderson's erroneous defence of Scott Morrison over the separation of church and state. You can read Henderson's original, uh, which misquotes Kevin Rudd's piece in The Guardian. The following will be Kevin Rudd narrating now. Australians deserve to understand clearly the influences that guide the nation's political leaders, whom they entrust with the extraordinary powers of our secular Commonwealth. This is why Scott Morrison's speech to the Australian Christian Churches last month, a secret speech that his office declines to publish, is a legitimate matter for honest, open debate. This debate should be conducted with evidence, fact and reason, hence why I contributed a 1,350-word piece for The Guardian on the intersection of Pentecostalism and Australian public policy. Sadly, Jared Henderson's summation of my critique in this newspaper was as reductive as it was inaccurate. For example, Henderson attacked my grievous overstatement that Pentecostals categorically believe that if you are godly, you will be healthy and wealthy. In fact, I simply noted the health and wealth gospel that often features in Pentecostal preaching. For evidence of this, consider the book You Need More Money, which expressly links divine blessing to being a money magnet. It was authored by Hillsong's Brian Houston, the nation's most influential Pentecostal pastor. Not all Pentecostals share Houston's theology on wealth. Like every branch of the Christian family, Pentecostal worshippers frequently defy their leaders. For example, I expect Morrison would accept evolution as a scientific fact, but if you examine their doctrinal statements, it is clear that not all Pentecostals do. Henderson dismisses concerns that certain Pentecostal doctrines could present problems for secular polity because they potentially erode the separation of church and state. However, Henderson should be acutely aware of this problem given his own experience with the National Civic Council of BA Santa Maria whose vigorous sectarian crusade in league with Archbishop Daniel Mannix split the Labor Party in 1955. Henderson conspicuously overlooks Morrison's behaviour, behaviours that have caused Australians concern. These include Morrison physically involving Australians in religious rituals, such as laying on of hands without their consent. When the Prime Minister tours natural disaster shelters, he's there in his secular office, not as the nation's high priest. If he wants to lay hands on people to impart the healing power of prayer, he can ask permission. That he doesn't seek consent implies he already knows how they might react. Second, Henderson is incurious about Morrison's views that humans can't fix the world's problems, that it is God's responsibility and what the world simply needs is the growth of the church. This deeply troubling logic may explain Morrison's disinterest in climate action. Henderson would be aware of an apocalyptic tradition among some Pentecostals that political action to resolve human or environmental problems is redundant simply because Christ's eventual return will herald the end of times. When voters cast their ballots, they deserve to know whether Morrison believes mortal problems can be solved by mortals. Third, there is a broader question how Morrison views this relationship between his office and God. Morrison's speech suggests he identifies with the kings and prophets of the Old Testament who claimed God spoke to them directly. 
Morrison's speech recalled receiving a message from God through a painting during the last election campaign, reassuring him of divine support in his partisan struggle against the Labor Party. Again, Australians deserve to know from Morrison how does he believe God communicates with Prime Ministers. Fourth, Henderson accuses me of attacking Morrison's commitment to his faith. I did not. To the contrary, I wrote that nobody should doubt the genuineness of his faith and noted we attended the same Christian fellowship in Canberra. No, Morrison shouldn't be attacked for his faith. Rather, he should have the political courage and moral fortitude to open up to Australians about how it informs his world view. Any suggestion that Morrison leaves his faith at his office door does not pass the pub test, given the content of his secret speech. Finally, Henderson apparently regards it as irrelevant to our polity that various Pentecostal churches around Australia have become active recruiting grounds for Liberal Party branches. In Queensland, the division is well known between the dwindling band of mainstream LNP secularists and a self-appointed God's army now dominating much of the state division. It is relevant to our democracy that this gradually pushes the coalition further to the far right and that we are beginning to see the religious polarisation of our national politics. In opposition, I wrote a 6,500 word essay on faith in politics because I believe that as a prospective national leader, voters deserved to know what they might be buying. After it was published in the monthly, I answered questions about it, including from this newspaper. Henderson dismisses my call for Morrison to do the same thing, arguing oddly that Morrison's speech explained so little he shouldn't have to elaborate. That, Jared, is precisely the point. Morrison should not leave Australians to rely on grainy iPhone footage and newspaper speculations to discern what the Prime Minister might have meant by his more curious comments. This discussion has never been more important. Pentecostal churches have long nurtured conscientious political minds on the right and the left, but the fact that these churches are now being deliberately targeted by Liberal and National Party recruiters who, borrowing from Santa Maria, signal to members that true Christians have no place in the Labour Party. This is sectarian identity politics. Henderson's conception of the separation of church and state is so narrow that he sees no questions worth asking. Many Australians disagree, both progressives and conservatives. They treasure our secular democracy and fear it being chipped away by the sort of religious fundamentalism seen in parts of the US Congress. They therefore raise legitimate questions and won't go away until Morrison definitively answers them. It shouldn't be hard unless, of course, he has something to hide. Well, we found out that his government is prepared to favour religious schools way, way, way over our public schools. Uh, and it's not that public schools are in any way anti-religion or anti-Christian, um, it's just that they enrol everybody from all, all parts of the world, regardless of whatever their colour or creed or class may be. But, I, just, um, I don't understand how we're going to separate separate church and state if our leaders can't separate their faith from their politics. Please, please answer. I need help. Um, well, it's very, it is very difficult, but uh, Rudd is saying, yes, you can have a faith, but you let people know what that faith is and how it is actually going to influence the, um, the um, decisions that you make, you see. Mm -hmm. A lot mm -hmm. of people are very concerned that uh, Christians would be concerned that um, there is a great emphasis in the Christian religion on compassion and love, and yet we are being day by day uh, uh, have an exhibition of what can only be called cruelty towards yeah. the Tamil family. 
Um, Rudd is not saying that the Prime Minister should not have a faith, but rather that we should be upfront with what we do believe. I'm always prepared to do that. Um, I'm prepared to say I'm a Christian, but I'm also prepared to say that I'm a rationalist. Um, And um, I'm also prepared to say that I believe in separation of church and state, that the secular is quite different uh, to the divine. But um, these people, uh, unfortunately, are sometimes uh, carried away with desire for power and and sometimes even for money and corruption. And um, it's a very sad thing indeed to see. But when it affects the future of our children uh, and the future of the country, then uh, it is a a matter of great concern indeed. And that's what the dogs have been on about for the last 50 or 60 years. (laughs) And that's what Section 116 is about. It's about no government being able to establish a state religion. And that's Mm. what's so important about the whole concept of this being a liberal regime. And also, also no government should be able to tell you what to believe in either. Exactly. Or, or enforce or enforced their beliefs upon anybody, and that is why this mm. is out of hands. With, my problem is with power comes influence. Yes. Which is very stressful because, I don't know, there's, there's some minds out there that are easily influenced, and when you have someone in power who they look up to because of not necessarily religious views but other views, they might um, take on all of those other concepts as truth. This is what's so important about education and making, yeah. especially making the humanities available to all students because it does create an environment whereby people are allowed to develop critical thinking capacity, (laughs) whereby they can, instead of just swallowing whatever information is put in front of them, they can critically assess the value of that information. And this is what is so frightening about taking those, these educational opportunities away from the majority of Australian students. Well, we'll have a bit of break and then we will talk about power, the power brokers and where they went to school. 3CR Radiothon. Show your support during June 2021. As much as we are lied to that what is happening in Palestine is complicated, there is nothing complicated about it. Israel maintains a regime of apartheid, ethnic cleansing and occupation. None of these concepts are new. They have all existed in some form throughout history. This nation is founded on settler colonialism. Drawing parallels between our struggles doesn't only shed light on the commonality of different social justice issues, but it also shows us that as Palestinians, our freedom and liberation is so inherently intertwined with the freedom and liberation of so many others around the world. 3CR Radio Community Powered Radio. To donate, call 03 94198377 Uh, you have the uh, selective high schools, and it's not surprising that Sydney's two most powerful people, uh, Scott Morrison and Gladys Berejiklian, were both publicly educated. Uh, our Prime Minister went to Sydney Boys High, and John Howard went to Canterbury Boys High, and uh, Gladys, who went to Peter Board High, uh, which was a comprehensive school, I believe. But it's the networks that are around them, the decision makers, the donors, the influence peddlers, where you see the old school tie, which is the most evident. For example, Turnbull went to grammar and so on. And a Sun Herald analysis of the schools attended by more than 50 of Sydney's power brokers, men and women who influenced the politics, business and culture of the city, found that almost 10% attended a single school. Anyone want to guess what it is? (laughs) 
It's a Jesuit school that Mr. Abbott went to, Riverview. So did Mr. Hockey. But so did 10% of the other power brokers around Sydney, interesting. And they include the Catholic Archbishop too, Anthony Fisher. And uh, he can always pick up the phone to both Mr. Morrison and Miss, Miss Berejiklian. Uh, at the moment, I think Fisher is getting what he wants out of the Cemetery Trust, isn't he? There's also an influential board, a broadcaster, Ben Fordham, and the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Tom Bathurst, as well as the UTS Vice-Chancellor, Attila Bruns, and another former Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, not to mention hockey and various others. The second most common schools are Cranbrook in Bellevue Hill and Knox Grammar in Warunga. And their graduates include a Vice-Chancellor, Mark Scott, a gaming mogul whose casinos also changed the skyline, James Packer, all the Packers went to Cranbrook, and a self-made billionaire tech mogul, Mike Cannon-Brooks. So in all, 23 of the city's most powerful men attended a sandstone boys' school almost half the Sun Herald's list, which charge high fees, nearly $40,000 a year in some cases. So they come from the wealthy. Almost two thirds attended private schools of the 50, even though among the general population, private schools only educated third of the students. And four and five attended single set schools and um, so on and so forth. The system perpetuates over generations as wealthy public school graduates, they call them, uh, they're really private school graduates, the wealthy ones, send their children to private schools. But seriously, like a lot of the comments, we're not really all that interested in the end who and who went to school. We're interested in people and we're interested in making sure our children get a good public education in Australia. But uh, we've got a great state school for you. So over to Madeline. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the school. week. Great state schools. State, state schools. schools. School are of the week. Schools. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. And our Great State School of the Week is Victoria Road Public School in Lilydale. So $2 million is a tiny fraction of the $7.64 billion that was spent on building and upgrading schools in Australia in 2019. But Victoria Road Primary School, the modest injection of capital funding, was revolutionary. The government grant was just enough for the state school in Lilydale to renovate its classrooms for the first time in its 50-year history. Principal Lisa Branch says, before that, it was pretty much exactly like it was when it was built 50 years ago. A big corridor down the middle, which took up a lot of space, with small rooms on either side that were isolated from each other and quite dark. The school used its $2.11 million grant to knock out the central corridor and build larger, light-filled rooms where children could learn as one or in smaller breakaway groups. It's really enabled them to teach the way that they wanted to teach. You know, 50 kilometres away at Hampton Primary School is a different story. The 110-year-old school of 650 students has been lobbying without success for several years for a large indoor gym so it can host whole school sports programs and, you know, general assemblies. Um, Joshua Sheffield, the principal from Hampton Primary School, says, we have got a lot of old facilities here and we're okay with that. We don't need new ones. But there's nowhere for indoor sport, nowhere for the PE teachers to run a program if it's too hot or too wet. We're lacking, we're lacking in some pretty basic stuff that every large school should have. Lilydale was one of the lucky public schools that got some of that uh, capital grants mm. that came through to public education, where mm. most of it was going out the other, out the leaky slip to the private schools where Hampton uh, lost out. I think you'd want to look at who was the uh, politician in those areas. But let's yeah, get on with Lilydale, shall we? What can yeah, you tell us about Lilydale? I would love to give you their profile. Um, the school has 57 pupils and 20 teachers, and 16 of those teachers are full-time. The students are broadly representative of the community. 
So 14% have parents from the upper 25 percentile income, um, 25% in the second highest and 23% from the poorest, uh, 25% of the community. So 10% of the pupils speak a language other than English and 2% are of Indigenous heritage. It costs the taxpayer $11,809 to educate a student at this school, but the capital grants in recent, recent years have been 500,000 from the federal government and 1,570,000 from the state government. The NAPLAN results are excellent for numeracy, not so great for writing, and just fine for everything else. So this is definitely one of, you know, the lucky schools. You know, it leads you to wonder, is it in a swing electorate? Do you think so, Jean? How do you feel about that? Um, I think that might be something uh, to do a little bit of research on, don't you? Because even in the public sector, there seems to be um, some unfairness uh, yeah, when it comes mm. to getting money into maintenance and um, the buildings. I know that uh, here in, in the inner city and in Kensington Primary School, uh, the Green the Green uh, Senator is she? No, I think she's uh, the member. Uh, Ellen Sandor has been working, having to work very, very hard just to get uh, a little bit into the school. But mm. when you see all the money just pouring into the private sector, the mind boggles, and mm. I can't see how in the end uh, people are going to put up with it. So when's the next election? Absolutely. I, I think our time's going, to, our time has run out. But before we go, I'd just like to say thank you to everyone who donated for Radiothon. You can still feel free to donate to 3CR to keep, keep us on air another year. But thank you very much for taking part in Radiothon last week. You can find anything that we've spoken about today at our website at www.adogs.info. And over to you, Jean. Well, it's bye for now, isn't it? And we'll hope to see you or be with you at this time, 12 noon, Saturday, next week. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe says I, him standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I'm dead, says Joe, but I'm dead. The copper bosses killed you, Joe, they shot you, Joe, says I, takes more than guns to kill a man. Says Joe, I didn't die. Says Joe, I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill, went on to organize. Went on to organize From San Diego up to Maine In every mine and mill Where workers strike and organize It's there you find your hill It's there you find
Shit.